Welcome to Archive Treasures. I'm Rosie Hill from the Trentham and District Historical Society. Each episode, we will explore a topic ranging from Irish migration in the 19th century to plane spotting at Cranny's Hill in World War II. With an appreciative audience gathered at the Trentham Neighbourhood Centre on Sunday the 19th of February, we were all treated to an excellent talk by Vicky Stegall, committee member of the Trentham and District Historical Society and professional historian. Over a much-enjoyed country afternoon tea, flowing conversation and sharing of stories followed the official proceedings. Tony van Rensburg kicked off the event welcoming everybody and introducing Vicky. This is, we hope, the beginning of many such occasions, so do keep an eye out for future events. Before we start, just a note about the sound quality. I think every low-geared truck, bus and motorcycle and 100 kilometre radius decided to zoom around the TNC corner that afternoon. Best endeavours have been made to remove the offending interference, but it has affected the sound quality in some parts. But hopefully, it doesn't detract from the wonderful and informative talk Vicky gave us. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, this is quite a special occasion because it's the first time we've gathered in a group since covid other than the AGM late last year where we launched Jenny Truella's book. So we have missed you and we're so glad that we can come together again. First of all, I just want to acknowledge the Jajawarang people whose land we're having this gathering on today and uh, pay respects to their elders, past and present. That's my task to introduce our speaker. First of all, a little story about when I met Vicky first. There was a small group of historical society members wandering around Trentham, trying to work out where the next walk around Trentham was going to be constructed. And we were down on Victoria Street and walked past Vicky and uh, Neil's house, and there was this delightful lady in her front garden. So we went and had a bit of a chatter. She invited us all in to have a bit of a yarn. And in that discussion, it became clear that she was going to be an ideal candidate <laughs> for the historical society. Because for a historical society to get a professional trained historian is quite rare. We have two, Ina Bertrand, who is still working for us, and Vicky. So welcome, Vicky. Thank you. She is not only an historian trained at the University of Melbourne, but she's also a well-recognised author, having written a number of children's books, one of which is known as Lunchtime Rules, sold 125,000 copies, seven languages and across the globe. However, that's not really what brings in enough. She contracts herself out to notable Victorian families to write their histories. And some of them are very notable. They include Sir Rod Carnegie, 
who, as you know, was the managing director of CRA for many years. It includes David Bardas, who was the sports girl, sports craft starter and owner. The O'Donoghue family, well-known local family. But her biggest assignment, which she's just about finished, is writing up the Yenkin family from 1820 to 1920. And what a yarn it is. Five years in the making, two volumes, teams of researchers, translators, photographers, and a huge storage container to keep all the documents that she's collected, disseminated, interpreted, and included in her, in her book. But her most important task or achievement is that she's a member of the Trentham District Historical Society. She heads up the writers group who produce articles for the Trentham Trumpet and other newspapers. Vicky's going to talk about after the research, what now? Over to you. Thank you. I know that quite a few of you are looking at your family's history, have done some research, some of you have done a lot of research, some are just starting out. And so today I'm really going to talk about how you make the leap from research to a book. And I thought we might start the talk in outer space. In fact, as of Monday, 18.5 billion kilometres from where we're standing now. And I'm talking about Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which most of us here are old enough to remember. In 1977, they set off, NASA set them off, to go and look at the outer planets, this little spacecraft, because the planets had aligned in such a way they could get through, and they were never coming back. It didn't matter about the alignment. They were going to circle the outer planets and then head off. And that is why Voyager uh, 2 is now 18.5 billion kilometres away. At a speed of 16 kilometres per second, it's still going. You can track it on NASA. They left the heliopause here in 2012. So this is further than anyone has ever gone before anything has ever gone from planet Earth. And this is where we got the little blue dot photograph some of you will be familiar with. Because they said, just as they were heading up, turn around and see if we can photograph Earth. And at first, they looked at the photo and said, oh, they missed. And then someone said, no, this is tiny blue dot in this little beam of sunlight across this incredible expanse. And that has become an iconic photo. It raised the question for the scientists that if this was going to go further than anyone or anything from planet Earth had ever gone before, they could well meet another civilization, or they might meet many civilizations. In 1977, we knew even less than we know today. And that raised a lot of questions for them. They had to, they felt that they had to say who we are, where we live, and what we stand for, and then tell them that we came in peace which is demonstrably untrue. I mean, they're Americans, they're not going to come in peace. But at the same time, they did actually have to confront this issue of who are we? And with um, Carl Sagan, who you may have heard of, and fellows from Cornell University, they set about creating these, this thing called the Golden Record. And this is actually looks like a record, 12 inches, copper record, 
covered in gold, so it is golden, and they collected all the images that they thought could say, we are earthlings. And they give a lot of thought. So there are 116 images, and natural sounds, there's music, uh, there are greetings from 55 different cultures, and they put tremendous thought into trying to show well, how we're the same and push aside the differences. And no one had really given much thought to what is an earthling from planet Earth before, and it took a lot of thinking about. And President Carter had a very good speechwriter who said, we cast this message into the cosmos, that's the golden record, of the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, some, perhaps many, may have inhabited planets and space-faring civilizations. If one such civilization intercepts Voyager and can understand these recorded contents, here is our message. This is a present from a small distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our thoughts and our feelings. It goes on a little bit longer. And I really like, when I was looking for an analogy quite a long time ago about what is family history, because most history deals with very big issues and debates things at an intellectual level and sort of moves the conversation along. But family history actually looks at people who are connected by DNA and says, this is your family, this is you. And I thought, this is just like a golden record of your family. And that's the way I now think of it. This is the Smith family golden record. And I say this because it's good to think conceptually about what we do before we start. So even if you dig a tunnel to put something mechanical in, you think conceptually about what its purpose is and what you're actually aiming to do, and then you set about doing it. I think that in our family history, we're really saying, who are we? What have we done? What can we learn from what we've done? And what sort of unites us a bit as a family. It's not always as simple as that, but I think that's a very good starting place. And then you send it out to the cosmos because you're not going to meet the people who read it. Your children will say, oh, that's really interesting, Dad, thanks for doing that, and they'll probably never read it. We've all experienced that. Your grandchildren might show a bit more. Your great-grandchildren are really interested. You may never meet them. And on and on it goes. So you've sent it out into the void. But the difference between you and the golden record is that you are connected by DNA to your readership. The other thing is that their, their history will help them to live their lives. Because there's a very much a view, like when I grew up, that history started in 1960. I would say most people now think history began about 2000. They don't really have a vague, murky idea of, I don't know, Trafalgar or Wellington, a few words like that. But this really gives you, gives them something to hang on to in their lives. And when they face the difficulties that people in previous generations really faced, way, way more than our difficulties, that can help them as they go through their difficulties and they find that their family just didn't sit down and start crying, but actually fought back, or didn't fight back, or whatever it is. So I always tell families that I'm going to introduce them to their own family, and that there are many benefits in that. And when we leave the concept behind, and look at how do you turn research into a book, we need to change our mindset. So I often think that when you bake a cake, you have all your cake ingredients there, but the oven coming away at 170 or whatever, everything is there, but you haven't got a cake. And you would no sooner say to someone, 
here's a cup of tea, would you like a bit of flour with that, which I can eat, you know, perhaps a little gob of butter. You have to make that cake. And the things that go into making that cake are quite different to the things that actually you just put on the bench there. So what are you trying to do when you make a cake out of the ingredients? You've really got to elevate it to the next level. You take something, it's almost alchemy. You take something, you turn it to something else. And the product we're looking here today is a book. You're going to turn it into a book, let's say. And this raises the question, and I'm sorry, but historians just question everything. That is what we're born to do. What is a book? And you've got to really think, what is the purpose of a book? I always say, and I'm going to say, a book is not a bag. A bag has a defined purpose, and if you can put everything that you wanted to get into that bag and carry it off, it's served its purpose. But a book is not a bag. You can't just pick everything up that you've done in the way of research, carry it over here, dump it over there, and say, I've done my book. Because you really haven't. You've still just got your ingredients. Now, some people want to do a reference book. Just not really family history. It's it's one step closer to the research. And I'm not talking about doing a reference book here today. And I tend to think if you do want to do a reference book, which is basically to regurgitate everything you've done, which is incredibly important, the research is critical, put it up on the internet where everyone can access it. We've never had that option before, but now we have that option. And that means that your relatives all around the world can benefit from what you've done. But it's not a book. So today we're really looking at books. When you get a book, and when you think about it, you have to start thinking more like a writer. And you have to remember that there are now three elements you're dealing with. The stuff, or your work, yourself, and the reader. And this is a new element that's come in. It's this person called the reader. And you have an obligation to the reader, I think, to take them on a journey. And they're looking to you, they've picked up this book, they're excited, they've got expectations about what they're going to find. And if you start off with Lois begat Mary who begat Simon who begat, and it becomes like the Bible, you know, when you've got all the begats, you've just lost your audience a bit. Everything's gone down a level, okay? So you've got to start thinking like a writer because you're dealing with a reader. And one of the things you need to do, and this is very difficult, people, and it, it always hurts, is you've got to balance the desire to use what you spent years of your life developing, all that research, balance that against the narrative flow. And there will be some people in this research who simply are not going to make it into the book. They'll be up on the internet, or they can be in your notes, or they can be somewhere where they're not lost, they're on the family tree, but you're going to have to leave them behind. And certain things that happened, you've got to start saying, is this germane to the story, or am I just going to confuse the reader with too much extraneous stuff going on because I want to put it in there? And, and that's a big thing to learn. It's a sort of skill. It's a balancing skill. And there is no doubt that the cutting room floor on this big book uh, that Tony just mentioned, the cutting room floor 
was knee deep in stuff. I just couldn't put it in and keep people's interest. So we put it up on an online archive. It's all there, but not in the book, because narrative flow is very important. Keep your reader with you on the journey. If you've taken their hand, take them on a journey, keep them there with you. So you have to then start thinking a bit like an historian. And that means that you don't just cut, but then you add meaning and context to what you do put in. I always use the question, what is really going on here? So if someone walks out on a marriage, let's say, we're talking family history, looks like uh, they weren't happy, whatever, just what is really, really going on here is a really good question. When people talk to us, they often tell us something that's just 10% away from what they actually meant, and you can sort of decipher behind that. And I know in business there's always this thing, what did they say, what did they mean? two different things. Um, you just sort of got to be watching your people all the time. And there was, um, uh, I don't know if you saw the article in the age on the, this weekend, Kate Legg, who's a writer, in fact, they went to school with her. She wrote about a husband's infidelity and then wrote that, in fact, his parents both ran off and didn't maintain a steady marriage. And then she found that her son has done exactly the same thing and trying to juggle with this. And I would say if you know your people well enough, you will find points where they're acting out something that's happened to them or happened to their parents and it's intergenerational. That's one thing to keep an eye out for. So people who went through the Holocaust, their children struggle with their lives and their grandchildren struggle. The stolen generation, we see that struggle playing out all the time. So don't accept explanations, but really think about those people as if they were people you know today. And don't leave them as what I call a three-pointer, a birth, death, and marriage, or a birth, death, marriage, where they went to school. If they're important people, go after them and really pursue them because family history is about people. And so you've got to get your people. And if someone has left no records, you might have to move on to someone else who really has. And just give what you've got about that person and move on to someone who tells the reader something. And if you can't find them, they're probably in jail. You've just found someone who's been searching for years for a great-grandparent who lives in jail or they're in an asylum. So I'm saying question everything. And I just, uh, you know how sometimes you start thinking about something you get a red car and all the cars look red, um, that sort of thing. Alex Miller, a very famed Australian writer, I was reading him last weekend, and he went after a man called Max, who was a mentor to him. Max Black, he's, um, he was a Jewish man in Europe during the war, and Alex Miller wanted to write his life, and found that he could track a whole lot of things about this man, great research, but he couldn't get the man. And it just nothing tallied that could make Max become a human being, as he had known him. What he says is about family myth and the importance of family myth. Often our shared family myths, which arise from informed speculation, embody a private 
even a poetic truth for us that can never be found in the official documents or prose of scholarly articles. Our emotional investment in the results of our research can never carry that quality. So I'm not saying make it up. I'm saying keep your research there, but allow them to be human beings as well. And we can't point to anyone in this room or any room anywhere who's a three-point person. You've all had collisions. You've all had near misses. We all have. And we've changed direction many times. So members of your family, go find that, is what I'd say. I would also see by the books, by other books of family history, see how they handled it, and read the top historians. Because a top historian doesn't get to the top by blurting out the results of their research. They give it meaning, they give it context, they bring things from over here, things from over there, and they build the picture, you know? And then when you read it, you, you're, you're with them. They've taken you on the voyage. And be prepared for the fact that family history, because it's different history, will combine the huge, like World War One or the Great Famine, and the tiny. In fact, one of my one of the diarists in this book there wrote in one, on one page of the diary. She said, uh, "World War One announced corset fitting at three thirty-five. <laughs> you know, and that's how it is. Quite often, they're not quite as squashed together as that. But you'll go from their life to the big picture. And if you say they came up because of the Great Famine, most people have a very hazy idea of what was happening in the Great Famine." It's up to you to show what the forces were that led them to leaving their home and don't just assume that it was hunger because also people were getting turfed off their properties if they were small properties because landowners had to pay the taxes on small so make sure they weren't dispossessed. Many uh, hundreds of thousands were. They were not necessarily hungry, they were dispossessed. All sorts of factors. So have a little look. And, and tell their story. Don't just assume that because they're in the middle of the Great Famine that hunger was what was behind it. But at the same time, build the picture for your reader so they get that picture of what's going on and what it was like to live in their town then, in the way that we know how it's like to live in Trenton now. Always read your sources carefully. Some people leave behind diaries and letters if you're really lucky. And... Look for what they don't say. This is a skill I picked up recently on a book where one woman was in England. She's a very sparse diarist. One woman wrote 55 diaries, 2 million words, in appalling handwriting. And I had to plow through that. But this woman, what she just said, you know, went to so-and-so, did such and such. And on one page, she had the words Market Labington. And that just screams out to you of someone trying to hide something but tell herself something. Like, why, of all the towns in England, would she write Market Lavington? And why did it feature so big in her brain that she wanted to put it down? She didn't put down all the other towns. So I looked up Market Lavington and it existed, and there seemed to be no obvious reason for her to have gone there. And then I remembered that she had a sister who seemed to have disappeared somewhere. It just I knew I'd have to find her eventually, but I hadn't. And so I went back to the Market Lavington site, and there's Fiddington House, huge, what they would call asylum then. 
And so then you can just get in touch with a local historical society like ours, Fund of Knowledge, and say, do you have the resources? Do you have all the data for Fiddington House? And there was Josephine. She'd gone in and she stayed for 17 years. You know, and probably a tablet from Ed would have fixed her up, but not in those days. So just by being attentive. And in another diary, I found the letter capital P. And this is someone who's trying to remember something, but keeping it, there's something she's a bit coy about here. And that opened the door to the most incredible love story on the eve of World War One, And uh, suddenly we knew what had happened to these people, how it had evolved. I found the man's photograph then out in Mansfield. And, you know, things happen once you open doors. And in this old farmhouse in Mansfield, there's a letter of this quite handsome-looking man. Sent it off to the military historian. What's he wearing? He said, oh, that's an Italian uniform. This is our man. And then we found out he'd been injured. There's the scar down the side of his face. That was Pete, Count Ferranti. And I, I thought we did a good job, actually, from one capital P, finding that this was Count Ferranti across in Italy. But when you actually look really, really closely, you can track it. They had actually bumped into someone called Count Ferruti, amongst hundreds of other people they've met. So I asked, this was a very good research I sometimes use, but I was just going to bed and I said, Anita, can you see if there's a Count Ferruti anywhere in Italy? And the next morning she came back with question, Ferranti? And of course you can, a U and an N are very easily said. So if I hadn't stopped to think, oh, that's funny, she's done capital P. Now that's the second time she's done capital P. And here's capital P again. We'd never found out all of this stuff. So they tell you things, but they're also keeping it quiet. And you don't put Fiddington House in your diary because it's an asylum. It's a 19th century. You're ashamed. You don't want anyone to pick that up and see that your sister is in an asylum. So you write Market Lavington. All right. So I'm just getting to the desk now. I'll sit down at the desk. But Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche said, if you can't find someone, and if you really can't find something about them, you can line the things up that they loved sequentially. Maybe they're a member of the CFA, maybe they joined some other society. And by the chronology and that lineup, you'll find your person. And that might be the best you can do with some people, but it will yield who they were, says Nietzsche. And if you have absolutely nothing, Jeffrey Bernard was a well-known alcoholic and writer in uh, the 20th century, and he wrote about his alcoholism. And think, I mean, he was very extremely funny. And he wrote a memoir called Reach for the Ground, which I really love this title of. And he put an article in the Times saying, my name is Jeffrey Bernard, I'm about to write my memoir. If anyone knows where I was between 1972 and 1984, <laughs> <laughs> so you know that's uh, that was his answer to that problem. It's also good to take a break from your material, and I'm going to read just this tiny little bit here about the French mathematician Henri Poincaré. I think I say to pronounce it, and he created a theorem, and he described how his ideas came for this magnificent theorem that he came up with. And he calls it a dance between creativity, that's novelty, surprise, could this happen, you know, that part of our brain, 
and the other part, which is convergent thinking, which is a logical approach. And you've got to meld those two as you write, and you'll feel both of them having a little fight with each other at certain points. For 15 days, I strove to prove that there could not be any mathematical functions like those that I have since called Fuchsian functions. I was then very ignorant. Every day I seated myself at my work table, stayed an hour or two, tried a great number of combinations, and reached no results. One evening, contrary to my custom, I drank black coffee and could not sleep. Ideas rose in clouds. I felt them collide until pairs interlock, so to speak, making a stable combination. By the next morning, I had it. So if you're getting too caught up, let your brain sort it. It's like when you do a jigsaw puzzle, sometimes you just reach a piece and put it down, and you didn't do it. Your brain did it because it'd be waiting for you to, you know, twig and you haven't. So you're now at your desk. How do you start? I have a, a theory that for people who don't write for a living, it's a very good jump. And the best, we're all good at talking because we have to do it every day and not so good at writing. So, and I used this once for um, a history, for a thesis. I just didn't quite get it off the ground. And so I put someone here on this chair who was a nice non-judgmental person. He said, what are you trying to do? That question, what are you really trying to do? I said, look, I want to write about the South Sea bubble. Or, you know, and then I was just, by just talking it out, I thought, oh, I can see what I want to do. It was there all the time, but I just couldn't get to it with a pen and paper or, you know, a rudimentary computer that we used in those times. So I really recommend, you might feel a bit silly, but talking is something we're very comfortable with. And when you talk, as you know, as you talk, ideas come. And that's a very good way to overcome that just crunch point. And then as for the all starts are provisional, that you go back, once you finish, you go right back to start, say, okay, this doesn't really reflect what it, what ended up happening. But still it's nice to have a start. And I again come back to the point, I would not use a begat, so-and-so begat Lois, begat Mary, begat, get them, get them interested. Give a taste of what you're going to give in the book. And in one of the books, I had an Estonian baroness, very highly born, had danced with the Tsar, falls in love with her doctor, he's not so highly born, but he's absolutely brilliant. And this is just incredible force between them. They each had four children, they ran away. They left their children, although they kept very good contact with them. But that was a rupture in the family. And a rupture is a very good place to find your starting point. Otherwise, you're just stepping into a flowing stream. And a lot of families have that rupture. So look for that. And that can be a very good start. And then you look and you think, oh, that's a good start. I feel quite good about myself now. And you just go on, you know? So it's good to have that for up here. If you have any psychological barriers, and this is particularly to women in the audience, you've got your mum going, oh, you shouldn't be writing a book. You know, don't mention Uncle Jack, who's an alcoholic. That's what we always had in our family, we talk about Uncle Jack. Still don't know who wrote. And this is uh, Anne Lamott's idea. She wrote Bird by Bird. She's become a very successful writer who was just kept down by what other people would say. And she said, I just thank them all for coming. 
put them here and then put a glass dome over them. You know, metaphorically. They can all talk amongst themselves, I'm getting on with this. And there are many psychological barriers to writing, particularly once you write your own family. Your first draft, I would say, just get started. You don't have to be at the end of your research to get started. And there's magic in starting. Because once you start, ideas flow. And you, your brain then logs onto the system. Okay, it's been looking at just research, which is funk, 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 and finding them. But once you start, your brain starts to warm up to the idea that you're bringing these together. And you're doing, I call it like a jigsaw puzzle with no edges, you know. But it, it likes that sort of thing if you expose it to that. So get started with the writing and write quite early. At universities, they say, don't wait till the research is all over. Just get started. Because it will create its own questions and you could end up researching things that you don't even use. Just get it out. And most writers write a first draft that is just like blurting out what you think. And you may not worry too much about punctuation. Don't get caught up in those adjectives and all those rules. Forget all that. Use whatever you've got and get it down. Then you go back later to your second draft. And you say, oh, no, I no longer think that. Or, oh, that should really be over here. The first draft, you get the flow. And that's really important, the flow. And don't try and edit and write at the same time, and that's very common advice, because they're different parts of your brain. You can't be creative and sort of, hmm, at the same time. You've got to be really one or the other. And you want to be in the creative flow and the intellectual flow and let, let the sort of stern taskmaster come in later, the editor. Very small points. Jeffrey Blaney, the historian, talks about writing into cul-de-sacs. You know, sometimes you've written something, you're in it, and you just, I don't know, I'm just going to have to back out of here. Some, and his view is to just stop and say, what am I really trying to say here? Give yourself one sentence, what am I really trying to say? And that gets you back out of that cul-de-sac. It's a very good advice. Adjectives. People say don't use that adjective. I really don't I really don't know why Shakespeare used them. Everyone used them, you know, the darling buds of made them. Imagine taking the adjectives out of that. I mean really, I think that came out of creative writing courses where they had to tell you something. And they told them that everyone got windy about adjectives. Just use them. We don't have so much so much in our pot that we can just, you know, not include it. I would say when you're at the polishing stage, it's very good to read it aloud. Because if you struggle over a sentence, that sentence didn't work. If even you, the writer, struggling over it, it didn't work. I did volunteer work for the RVRB for about 15 years, reading texts out. And they started us off on the history of Sunbury, which of Sunshine, which was written by a woman that we all just wanted to kill by the end. And it was, if you could get through that, you could go on and narrate. And that was a real test. Every sentence of hers just was appalling and didn't match the one after the book. So read aloud. If she'd read aloud, we'd have all had a happier time, I think. And my final piece of information, I think, is no matter how good you are, get an editor. You know, pay when you're finished, don't send your book out into the world without having some someone very professional to look over it. Because they'll say, 
you've introduced this person here, you're talking about them, you haven't introduced them anywhere because you've moved information around. Or what's going on here? Or you've you've misspelled tiny things, big things, get an editor. You've done all that work, you've done your research, get an editor. And that is my little precy, I think, of how to write your fan. I hope I haven't confused you more. But it's a great process and I really just enjoy it. It really is so, it's just marvellous. The stories you get just break your heart and you just want to tell them in the end. So thank you. Archive Treasures is produced on Zha Wurong country. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners, and we would also like to extend our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Archive Treasures is brought to you by the Trentham and District Historical Society. If you would like to hear further episodes, they are available from most podcasting apps, or on our website, www.trenthamhistoricalsociety.org.au or you can go to our Facebook page Trentham and Districts Historical Society Australia I hope you can tune in next time for more archive treasures